Greetings in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks to be united in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it well from Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek this harmony by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord, because we believe that it's not just some separate book, but it is, it is in accord with God's holy word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today we continue our study of the preface of the Book of Concord. Last week we were very blessed with Dr. John Maxfield, who is a historical uh, theologian from Canada has done extensive research on the Book of Concord and its history, and it shows the importance of the Book of Concord in those days, but also the importance for us today, which shows how we need to be clear, we need to be united, and our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. Today, we continue, especially as we look at the role of the Augsburg Confession. Although many of you are, maybe you're not a big historical person, but this is vital for our understanding of the whole Book of Concord, why we confess it, why we value it, why we look to it, and why we believe it all points us back to Christ. So today, hold on tight. We'll get digging to it. So open up your Book of Concord, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any, any questions concerning our study of the preface, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, it is our honor to welcome the Reverend Dr. John Helwig, Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Lutheran Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta. Dr. Helwig, welcome to Concord Matters. Oh, thank you, Brady. It's uh, great to join you here on Concord Matters. I know we've done Bible study before, but it's the first time on this program, and so I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Pastor, it is, is a joy to, like I said, have you on. And this is our first time on Concord Matters, so tell us about uh, yourself and, and your work at Concordia and whatever you want to share. All right. Well, um, I started off actually as a pastor in the Missouri Synod, and then um, when I got called up here to... Uh, Lutheran Church Canada, I transferred to, we're actually um, sister uh, church bodies, or technically, I guess, Lutheran Church Canada is a daughter of the Missouri Synod, formerly three districts of the Missouri Synod. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, I have a PhD in historical theology. Um, my emphasis is actually in the modern world, so I, I focus a bit more in some of those more depressing things like the church and Nazism. But uh, here at uh, Concordia Lutheran Seminary, I actually was first called to do more of systematic theology, and which is my secondary field. And uh, but I've taught in a number of different uh, courses across the spectrum, as we are a micro seminary with uh, four full time faculty members. So we all wear a lot of hats around here. So, uh, Dr. Helwig, it is uh, uh, the LCC, as I mentioned last week with Dr. Uh, Maxfield, the LCC is in full fellowship with the LCMS. And I know for our district, Minnesota North District, until 19, was it 1988, that we had, yes. we had a lot of Canadian churches in our, um, in our district. 
And so I think is a 1988 when those two churches, when the new church body was made. Yes. Yeah. It was 1988 when uh, Lutheran Church Canada was formally um, constituted. And prior to that, for the most part, it was um, three districts of the Missouri Synod here in Canada. But you're right, there was some cross border of some of the districts as well. And uh, they had formed um, the entity of Lutheran Church Canada a number of years before, but it was a subdivision of the Missouri Synod at that time. But the idea was that uh, it's better for life and ministry within Canada to have our own indigenous church body here that takes on a bit more of a Canadian flavor and uh, focuses a bit more on Canadian um, concerns and that sort of thing. Wonderful. Well, and reminder to our listeners, you know, we have fellowship with many church bodies around the world. So continue to pray for our sister church bodies, especially that of the Lutheran Church of Canada and around the world that we will be united in our, our, our doctrine and practice. And that is exactly why we're talking about what we are today with the Augsburg Confession and the preface to the Book of Concord. That's where what unites us with these rest of these church bodies, and especially as it gives us a crystal clear understanding of the gospel from, from Holy Scripture. Pastor, we are um, on uh, page six of the Book of Concord, the Reader's Edition, which is from Concordia Publishing House, of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. We are on page six, which the number to the right is number 16. The title is The Role of the Augsburg Confession is where we're going to start today. And Pastor, uh, there's a lot of history in your historical theologian, a lot of history that leads us up to this point. And I do encourage you listeners to listen to Dr. Maxfield last week. He, he really builds it up to this point, but there's always more history to share. So Pastor, uh, Dr. Helwig, how do you want to begin our time today as we look at the role of the Augsburg Confession? Well, the, the challenge from almost, well, pretty much from the very beginning with the Augsburg Confession was, what is its role? What was the purpose of it? It was first written and then presented formally at um, the Diet, the meeting of the um, Holy Roman Empire in Augsburg, hence the name the Augsburg Confession, as a formal statement of faith of the Lutheran princes. And it was presented there. But then immediately after that, the, there was a question, what exactly is it now? Is it just something that was a one-off statement? Is it something that continues to be binding upon Lutherans? Is it something that is set in stone as it's been signed and submitted? Or is it a work like any other work by any other author in which the author can start making um, different editions and making changes thereof? And it was that gray area that lays behind this section of the preface because it was viewed in different ways by different Lutherans, both at that time and then especially as time progressed on. And so there are questions as far as you know, what, what was the role here as it was challenged by different people. And so as we come to the role of the Augsburg Confession, it was inter interesting to me last week, we, uh, we talked specifically about how when we read the preface, we have to remember that this isn't like the beginning of the Reformation and Martin Luther writes this preface. We're talking 
we're going all the way to 1584, which is the version that we have with us. The 1580 and 1577, all these major events happen. And then they write this preface looking back at everything that had occurred. So this is a a decent time period from 1529, really, up to 1580, 1584. So there's a lot that happened. And that's just a good historical reality for me. Do you have any reflections on that as as we read the preface and, and keep that in mind? Yeah, you're right. A lot has happened between them. Um, The Book of Concord, of course, being put out originally in 1580, partially to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Augsburg Confession. But during that time period, a lot had shifted from the Augsburg Confession originally being written um, and the very first part of it being written with the hopes of maybe making a a peace with the Roman Catholic Church so that Lutherans could be considered to be part of the Catholic Church, but more importantly, help to reform the, the greater Western Church and bring it back to the gospel, to then that being clearly not the case. Um, during this time period, there's even the talk of what would become the and the development of the Council of Trent um, and that. But the other key thing that happens during this whole time period is the death of Martin Luther. And that really causes a lot of challenges in various different ways. One of them being very simply that while he was alive, there was easier to ask what was Lutheran because you could literally ask Luther. Um, But when he passes away and then as the next generation starts to take over, uh, there's a bit more of a question of, where do we go for grounding? Obviously, for Lutherans, it's always Scripture, always has to go back to Scripture. But as we even look at the, the landscape in the church today, we can talk to Christians and say, oh, yeah, we hold to Scripture as God's Word and authoritative, and yet we can, can come up with very different interpretations. And so the question is, where do you go? How do you get that right interpretation of And uh, this is where the Augsburg Confession and then the other confessions start to take that role more and more of a permanent record of what is a right interpretation of Scripture. The other factor in all this is is that um, when Luther passed away, his longtime friend and partner, Philip Melanchthon, lived on for a number of years. And people looked to Philip to take over at the helm of this um, burgeoning movement, if you will, within the church. But the problem was that Melanchthon was a very different man with very different gifts than his good friend, Martin Luther. And the two of them together, actually, I think, made an excellent team. And it, you can see, looking back, that it appears God's hand was in this of pulling those two together. Um, Luther being the um, more biblical theologian, um, he is always looks very much so at what does scripture say and whereas Melanchthon was much more systematic thinker and tried to pull together different aspects so Luther will talk in the way of say the way Romans talks in this place and another time he'll be talking and using more the language of say the gospel of Luke or something whereas Melanchthon's like okay let's pull it all together and systematize it Uh, Luther was a very strong um, bold, sometimes brash individual, um, 
people sometimes mischaracterize him, I think, today because of his brashness, as if that was uncharacteristic of that day, but it wasn't at all, in fact. But uh, but he was a good one to stand up and uh, be firm. Uh, Melanchthon, I, I actually kind of have understand and kind of feel for Melanchthon a bit. I think I'm personality-wise closer to him. He was more of your quiet scholar, absolutely brilliant scholar, um, but he was one who would be happy to just study and teach and that, but he was also a bit more of a peacemaker. Um, in one way, it was very good with the Augsburg Confession. He was able to, as Luther put it, walk softly there to try to um, put this forth in a way that is winsome and understanding. The problem was that when Luther passed away, Melanchthon then gets becomes more and more um, conciliatory to others trying to make the peace, but likewise then starts being willing to be convinced or away from or even kind of watered down the truth some to, in the effort of making peace. And so these factors fit in their key too, that during this time period, there becomes a lot more confusion as to what does it even mean to be Lutheran? And these Lutheran followers are splitting off into various factions. And that's why the formula of Concord and then had to be written as well as then put together all these documents into the book of Concord to try to settle all of these disputes and pull everybody back to a clear biblical understanding of the truth. You know, uh, Dr. Helwig, it is really interesting as we look at this because to make the the, the uh, distinction of Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, uh, we don't have time to go all into that, but it, it is very helpful, especially today as we look at what it says as the role of the Augsburg Confession and the second edition of the Augsburg Confession. It depends on who you speak to. Some people will look at Melanchthon and say, oh, he ruined everything. And some people say, well, you know, I, I'm kind of sympathetic with him um, for the various uh, realities that came. So I, I just want you, you, our listeners, I think that's a great insight for all of us to realize that th these two men, faithful men, uh, were trying to do what they could. And, and, and just like all of us, as we try to, to live out our Christian vocations, our Christian lives, and, and what does scripture mean, um, that we can't separate personalities as we look at everything. So, so Pastor, as we are about to dig into the preface, um, anything else you want to highlight before we dig in? Probably the other thing, and we'll, as we, we're going to dig in here shortly then, is, is, and as you mentioned, it talks about the second edition of the Augsburg Confession. And that's part of it is, is that Melanchthon, um, even fairly early on, was one, first of all, he's a perfectionist, wanting to tweak things, improve things, and that. Um, but also then he starts subtly starting to shift doctrines a little bit here um, as he pushed into that. And so that lays behind some of the questions that are addressed here in the preface. So maybe best to go ahead and turn to that text now. All right. Well, reminder to your listeners, we actually are going to start on page seven. The uh, uh, This is the reader's edition, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions from Concordia Publishing House. It, it begins uh, our section on page six, it says the role of the Augsburg Confession is a heading, and we're going to begin on page seven, the second paragraph in our section, and begins with the word so. So no one may permit himself to be disturbed by the charges of our adversaries spun out of their own mind. 
They boast that not even we are sure which confession is true and genuine Augsburg confession. But those who are still living and also future generations may be clearly and firmly taught and informed about what that godly confession is. For both we and the churches and schools of our realms always profess and embrace it. We emphatically testify that after the pure and unchangeable truth of God's word, we want to embrace the first Augsburg Confession alone. It was present to the Emperor Charles V in the year 1530 at the famous Diet of Augsburg. This confession alone, we say, and no other. Copies of that confession were deposited in the archives of our predecessors of excellent memory, who presented it in the Diet to Charles V himself. We caused the copies to be compared by men worthy of confidence with the copy that was presented to the emperor himself and is preserved in the archive of the Holy Roman Empire. We did this lest we should be found lacking in most accurate regard for diligence. We are sure that our copies, both of the Latin and the German, correspond to the original in all things, like with like meaning. For this reason, we also wanted to insert the confession presented at Augsburg in our explanation. This will be submitted here or in the Book of Concord. Then all may understand that we have resolved to tolerate no other doctrine in our realms, churches, and schools than we was approved at Augsburg in 1530 in solemn confession by the above-mentioned electors, princes, and deputies of the empire. By God's help, we retain this confession to our last breath. Then we should go forth from this life to the heavenly fatherland to appear in our joyful, undaunted mind with a pure conscience before the court of our Lord Jesus Christ, from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. Therefore, we hope that our adversaries will spare both of us and the ministers of our churches. We hope they will not use these customary and most grievous accusations. A, we cannot decide with certainty among ourselves about our faith, and B, we are forging new confessions almost every year. Yes, even every month. Uh, Pastor, there, there, there's a lot of unique language here. I do like how it does become very personal and kind of a little snarky at times. Um, it gives us a rundown. The role of the Augsburg Confession. Where do you want to begin? All right. Yeah. Uh, first of all, just on the language, it's also very much so written in kind of official court language. So it gets a little flowery at times, but also hmm. defensive. And a lot of it is because the charge was being made um, by John Eck, the great um, nemesis of Luther's, that um, the Lutherans were playing fast and loose with the Augsburg Confession. And, you know, he wasn't, you know, his charges were not unfounded on that. Um, Melanchthon being the perfectionist, and he always tended to view the Augsburg Confession as sort of his own work that he had written, just like an author will treat their own book today. Um, but also the even the, the princes, and particularly the elector of Saxony, too, saw it that way. And so there was a matter of yeah, additions or changes can be made. Um, there were actually a couple smaller ones that were done um, as early as 1531, the year after it was submitted. Um, he was already starting to make some minor changes to the Latin, and then some more in the to the German translation in 33. Um, I don't know if you've covered it, but it might be helpful to note that at the Diet of Augsburg, they actually submitted it in both, as noted, um, it's, they submitted it in both the Latin and the German. Um, the Latin, because that was the 
the common language of the intellectuals. And uh, quite frankly, Charles didn't even speak German. Um, but uh, then the German, because it was of the uh, the language of the Holy Roman Empire, which would be today what we would call Germany. And so they submitted it in both languages. And so both of the translations are considered authoritative. Um, for those who are reading this edition of the Augsburg Confession, you'll note that, or of the, the Book of Concord, in the Augsburg Confession, it only has one translation. It's kind of a, a combination of the German and Latin together. Other translations will actually have those separate separated, but it gets a little confusing then. Um, it's something us scholars like to play with. But, uh, <laughs> well, but anyway, so Mike, Mike that's early on, just kind of tweaking a little bit of wording here, a little bit of wording there. Um, and but the big one being then in um, 1540, that is when the major changes were made. And there was actually another version in 42 um, that was written. And so, you know, if you're keeping count now, but, you know, you're already taught, we're already talking about there's a German, there's a Latin, but then we're also have the originals and at least four other um, versions that have popped up with either minor or significant change, fairly significant, not huge um, changes to them during this time period. And so this is why they're saying we need to make it clear. It is we're bound to or holding to, um, as they put it, there's the, they embrace the first Augsburg confession alone that was presented to the emperor. And this is why too, um, if you're a member of the Lutheran church, you may have noticed a lot of our churches have, it might be written over the lintel of the front door or carved into the um, cornerstone of the building, the letters UAC, and that stands for unaltered Augsburg Confession, meaning these first edition that we're um, here saying that's what we are held to and not the later changes. And so they're emphasizing that that is the right understanding and interpretation of it. But these others had been, again, crept, crept in for a variety of reasons, both trying to clarify things, trying to explain things. But also, at times, I think Melanchthon's own theology was starting to shift, and he was starting to try to tone things down a little bit to make it more accessible uh, particularly for John Calvin and uh, those of what we would consider now a Calvinist persuasion. And can you, I know we're going to get to this a little bit later. Were there specific um, uh, doctrines that Melanchthon was really um, maybe waffling on or maybe not being as clear as he could as he continued to engage other uh, uh, churches? Um, the, the main one that he really didn't, and waffling is a good term, I think, actually, um, was the Lord's Supper and, uh, really kind of pulling that back. And, uh, when we start to look at that, that what's now considered generally the second edition, which is the, the 1540 edition of it, the, the primary variata, um, it is written in such a way that it can be understood from a good Calvinist perspective as well as from a good Lutheran perspective. Um, and that's the, the primary one that he 
has hit on um, it's interesting other aspects like article four on justification, which in um, the 1530 in the original is a very short, it's one full paragraph. It's not um, marked as three of those little side paragraph numbers, but one actually paragraph um, in 1540, he's actually expanded that out to four longer paragraphs, um, not in an attempt to wall for water down, but rather just the opposite, try and clarify it uh because it, that's one of those ones that's fascinating that article four of the original is very short and sweet and when that was rejected by the um roman catholics at the diet of augsburg in their confutation then we find that the corresponding article in Langton's apology the or the defense of the augsburg confession the apology the augsburg confession as we call it today is a very long because he's you know, it has a lot to explain, a lot to defend, but already he's already starting to insert some of that defense back into the Augsburg Confession, not an attempt to water down, but just the opposite to try and strengthen and clarify those things there. So, And it, it really is as simple as, um, will the real Augsburg Confession please stand up? Yeah. You know, which one is the authoritative one? And especially, and, and Pastor, I think this is something that we'll, we'll address on the other side of our break, is this question, since the Augsburg Confession is not Holy Scripture, how do we then look at it appropriately, especially when there's been things that have been changed? But right now we need to take our break. We are studying the preface to the Book of Concord with Dr. John Helwig, and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are studying the history and background of the Book of Concord and the preface with Dr. John, John, excuse me, Dr. John Helwig of Concordia Lutheran Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta. And Pastor, I want to take one step back. You mentioned it, and, and it, it's a very good practical note for everybody of our listeners, is that if you go to a church, <clears throat> I think most of them that are built prior to, let's say, 1970, I'm, I'm really just, I'm guessing at this stage, that they'll see on the cornerstone or the side of the wall that those words, 1960 UAC. And it, it, it's, it's just a good, just a good teaching moment. I actually had some friends who were free Lutherans. So there's an American free Lutheran church um, in America, uh, excuse me, Amer- American free Lutheran church. And, and they make a big distinction. They really emphasize that. And one of my friends had started going to that church and he said, they keep saying the unaltered Augsburg Confession that when they speak about what they believe. Can you give me more insight on that? So this is this kind of a, a important thing for all of you, our listeners, to to witness and to see. And it's kind of cool to see that you know that these people take their theology serious. Pastor, any thoughts on that kind of that practical reality that when you do see a UAC, what that means and why that's important for us today? Um, 
Yeah, again, that uh, is pointing out that it, we're holding to the the unaltered, the original Augsburg Confession, the one that is the most clear on the sacrament of the altar and how Christ comes to us in his body and blood there. Um, I should also note that if you're ever at the ordination or installation of a pastor, um, and there, in, in Lutheran Church, we always have are asked um, if we hold to the canonical books of Scripture, and then uh, do we also agree that the Lutheran confessions are a good explanation thereof? And again, as it lists those, it is listed as the unaltered Augsburg Confession to make mm-hmm. abundantly clear that, yeah, we hold to the original one and none of Melanchthon's uh, variata. And I, I want to I want to bring this up. I, I brought it up before our break. Is this is something I think I need to continually be able to teach? Is the the natural pushback might be okay? You guys are really making a big deal out of the original Augsburg Confession as if it is the Word of God. Like this is straight from the pen of Saint Peter or Saint Paul or something along those lines. And clearly it is not. So why make, make such a big deal out of that? And how, how would you encourage our listeners and, and pastors and everybody else to be able to sure we keep everything in the right context of this isn't the Bible, but it is in accord with God's word. And so what does this mean about clarity, um, the original text, all that? that? That's kind of a hard thing to, to work through. How would you encourage our listeners with that? Yeah, um, yeah I think you're right. And it's always important for us to emphasize that uh, the ultimate norm, the ultimate authority for us as Lutherans is God's word, period, end of story. But there's always the question, how do we understand it? What is the right interpretation thereof? And that's the role of creeds and confessions. Um, and the beauty of the Book of Concord is, is they're all in one binding here for us. Uh, but the thing is, is that once you make a statement of faith, and that is one that has been carefully crafted, um, studied, and then adopted by the church, one should tread very lightly before one thinks about making changes to that. Um, it, number one, there's always a danger that you're going to get something wrong, but also there's even the matter of, uh, and this is part of the issue even here, is just imagine if you and I were making a business dealing, say I'm going to sell you some property or something. We write up a contract for it, you sign the contract, and then I make some changes to the contract. Um, you'd be immediately crying foul to it and uh, for good per- good reason. And so there's there's kind of that side to it too, and politically, and this is why um, Eck was upset because it had been submitted. Why are you then monkeying with it? But also then there's always the question too, if something is being changed, why? Is it being changed to make it more clear, more precise, better? Um, or is it being changed in such a way that actually takes clarity away. And that's the unfortunate case with the variata, particularly um, when it looks at the Lord's Supper, that it's taking clarity away and thereby you're taking away from some of the value that it has um, for us to make clear what is going on in uh, when we come to the sac- receive the sacrament of the altar in this case. And so, Pastor, as we as we look at, uh, we can start looking at the the variata as they speak about it uh, in the preface. 
Is there anything else you wanted to uh, speak to as we looked at this first section? Um, the other thing I think to to note with just the the variata itself is that you know, we're starting to see again Melanchthon is shifting a bit in his own theology. Um, what's interesting is is that in 1538, so this is two years before this significant change is printed. Um, John Calvin uh, was had been forced to flee from Geneva to um, Strasbourg and during his eventful life. But Strasbourg was formerly Lutheran, and the Strasbourg board wanted him to make him a, a teacher of theology uh, the following year in 1539. But as a teacher of theology, he was going to be required to sign the Augsburg Confession. And he did so. He, he signed the Augsburg Confession, the original 1531, but he did so, as he said, quote, in the sense in which its author explains it. And so a year before Melanchthon makes these changes to it, we already know that, and he and, and Calvin were uh, acquainted, were wrote to each other back and forth a fair bit, had a, a lot in common, actually, as a couple of um, sharp scholars but and uh, humanists in that uh, Refer uh, Renaissance humanism. But uh, that he is already starting to shift away from the Lutheran understanding of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper because he's apparently shared that with Calvin, that he, he has a bit more open version view of that and Calvin is willing to therefore subscribe to it not as what really is written but as Melanchthon's explaining it and then the following year Melanchthon then um, when he makes this new edition writes in these these subtle changes into it and I think it's that we do have this tendency to think the more I edit the better it will get where it's very clear, this is what scripture says. And therefore, let's confess it and not try to take anything away. And that is the, it's very clear, that is the the main concern. This isn't the word of God, but yet it is um, in accordance with God's word. And so we, we believe it because it is, and we confess it because it is, and we unite around those words. So pastor, let's get to the next section here. Sounds um, good. Sec second edition of the Augsburg Confession, which is page seven. And this is number 17 to the right. The second edition of the Augsburg Confession. Furthermore, we write about the second edition of the Augsburg Confession. We note that mention is made about this in the transcripts at Nomburg. What is also known to all is that by appealing to the wording of this latter edition, some have wanted to cover and conceal corruptions regarding the Lord's Supper and other errors. They've attempted to thrust their errors upon an ignorant populace by means of published writings. They have not been motivated by the distinct words of the Augsburg Confession, which was presented first. These errors are openly rejected by the first Augsburg Confession and are far different meaning than these people want, want can be shown in that document. Therefore, we have decided in this writing to testify publicly about this and to form all. We wanted neither then nor now in any way to defend, excuse, or approve false and godless doctrines and opinions. 
Such things may lie concealed under certain coverings of words, as though they agreed with the gospel doctrine. Indeed, we never understood the second edition in a different sense, in any part from the first edition that were presented. Neither do we think that other useful writings, as Dr. Philip Melanchthon, or of Brent's Urban Regius, um, Pomeranus, or others, should be rejected and condemned, as long as, in all things, those writings agree with the standard that have been set forth in the Book of Concord. Pastor, they're speaking of the second edition, and what is he saying? Yeah, well, that and what's interesting is that they note there, particularly at the latter portion of what you read, that they didn't understand the second edition to be different from the first. Um, and that is kind of curious that when Melanchthon first came out with this and the, the 1540, I should note, wasn't just, this wasn't just Melanchthon's choosing, but, uh, Elector John Frederick, this would be the son of John the Steadfast, um, nephew of Elector Frederick the Wise, who is now Elector of Saxony. He, um, asked Melanchthon to do an update of the Augsburg Confession. And so Melanchthon wasn't just kind of doing this on his own. Um, but one of the things that has been noted too that's curious is that he never, Melanchthon never made it really clear that this was an updated or a different edition. He made it in the, in the same year, he made an update to his apology, um, the apology of the Augsburg Confession, that he actually called did, diligently revised. But he never said that with the Augsburg Confession. Um, but it's interesting in that um, when the others read this, they did not see a problem with it. Um, and what happened was another scholar of that era, another Lutheran, um, Ocelampadius, had pointed out that the Latin term that Melanchthon had used um, there referring to um, Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper was different than what had been historically used. Um, and so Melanchthon shifted from the original one in the Augsburg Confession to one that had been more widely used earlier in the church. And the, the thing is, is that both can be read in a good Orthodox way. And so most were just kind of importing into that. Um, just like if you and I were talking and I said something that maybe wasn't quite theologically precise, uh, you would hopefully assume that I meant it in that theologically proper way, um, the same way they originally said, no, that's, that was what he meant. Um, and what it was is that in the original edition of the Augsburg Confession, he said that the, um, the wording that there is, is that the the body and blood of Christ are truly present and are distributed to those who eat the supper of the Lord. Um, and so the Latin word distributo, which means to distribute something, divide it amongst others, or, or even assign it to you. Um, that was the word that he replaced. I mean, there's some other wording things there, but he changed it with exhibio, um, which means to be to exhibited, um, presented, caused, or made. So, um, instead of saying, so the, I should say the other Lutherans look at it, go, well, you know, 
instead of it being distributed to it, you're saying he's presenting it to you. Okay. That can, and under that understanding of that word, that can be understood, you know, properly, just as, you know, when, um, as I'm, as a professor right now, it's a little weird. I'm an ordained pastor, but I'm a member of a congregation, not a pastor of a congregation at the moment. Um, but when I'm there at the rail, you know, if you said, you know, that my, what, that my pastor presents to me, Christ's body and Christ's blood, I would say, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But if it's understood as exhibited, kind of it's shown here to be in some way, um, then it gets a little bit more um, fuzzy with it. Mm-hmm. And so early on, there at the 1540 edition, people were like, okay, Luther or Melanchthon's just trying to get closer to the more historic um, terms. And since so much of, contrary to what the Catholics say, so much of what the Lutherans were doing was actually, no, we're going to go back to the way the church has always taught um, with this. Is okay, maybe this adjustment of wording is better. It's not until 21 years later in 1561 that. Now, Elector Frederick III of the Platinet used this updated wording of, it's actually of Article 5 of the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry not 5, Article 10 of the Augsburg Confession. Um, he used that to argue that he, he, his Calvinist views were acceptable in, um, the, in Lutheran lands because he said that that this translation of saying that uh, the you know with the body, bread and wine the body and blood of Christ are truly exhibited to those who eat the Lord's Supper, you know he said yeah I would say that yeah spiritually they're held, they're shown forth to, to the members of the Lord's Supper so I'm fine you know and that was with the first time that somebody really looked at it and said ah here in this this variata, I've got wiggle room that I can define the Lord's Supper in a Calvinist way and yet hold my standing within the Lutheran circles with all of the legal protections that came with that. And so that's when this became a theologically a problem. It was a bit of a problem before that with uh, Eck in 41, but it was theologically became a problem when... Um, in 60, 1561, when uh, Frederick III was using this slightly less clear language as the opening for him to have his Calvinist views. But I'm not sure it was just him, because if you go back to Calvin in in uh, 39, was saying that he can hold to the, the Augsburg Confession as Melanchthon understands it. So it does seem that Melanchthon is opening that door that you can understand Christ's body and blood as being either physically present in a Lutheran understanding or spiritually present in a Calvinist understanding. But it wasn't it, until 61 that any, any Lutherans really stood up and said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take this out. And then it became, you know, much more of a controversy within Lutheranism itself as to what even was Lutheranism then. And that's, that's an interesting part, too, because you think about we have some very clearly defined terms as we have seen the Book of Concord come together, as we've seen it practiced and proclaimed and taught 
over the, the centuries. So we're able to look at that with a little bit different lens. Well, they're still trying to figure this whole thing out. Like, what does it mean to be part of the Reformation? What does it mean to be part of this evangelical group, um, Lutheran, whatever you want to call it? What does that actually mean? And it, and it reminds me of in our world today that I once uh, had a funeral and there was a, a couple pastors of a different denomination that is significantly more liberal than our denomination. And, and so I had the funeral and I clearly confessed the hope we have in Christ, his resurrection, uh, salvation is only in him. And that person who is quite left wing said, I did a really good job. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, you know, maybe I did something wrong. And it, it's just a good reminder for me. It was a good reminder for me to go back and to make sure that I am very clear pastoral care of souls. You know, you're worried about people's consciences. You don't want to uh, go overboard, but it is very important that we are clear. And so if, if a Calvinist who says that's not really the body and blood of Christ reads through your writing and says, well, oh, I can accept that, then we maybe are not as clear as we had thought we were. And that that is why it's very important for us as we look at the original, that that's very clear, no questions asked, um, that we are able to confess that without hindrance. And that, am I, am I correct in, in how I'm, I'm looking at this? Yeah, I think you are. Um, and that uh, clarity has to you know, be done, uh, or we need to be sure that we're clear. But the other thing that's always important to remember um, when we look back at throughout uh, church history is, is that clarity comes out of problems. And so, and, and also, also or rather the way I like to always put it is, People never answer a question that has not been asked yet. And so there are even some people who go back to the very early church and uh, the, some of the early apologists and that and say, well, they're not really that orthodox on justification. Well, that's because those questions weren't being asked. And so, you know, or even they, they'll point to like the, the, the nature of Christ. Uh, well, you don't have to clarify yourself against the heresy of Arianism until the heresy of Arianism comes forward. Mm -hmm. um, but once there is that misunderstanding that comes forward, now there is, we need to be more careful to make sure that we're not falling into this or that misunderstanding. And that's exactly what happened here was that early on, you know, that in, you know, in 1530, they had made it and they actually, they actually did a very good job being very precise and clear. Then in 1540, he seems to be kind of watering it down some, but the rest don't expect that. They don't see that. Um, they're really not asking the question of, could a Lutheran take a, a Calvinist, and Calvinism still very much so in its early stages at this point, but take a Calvinist view of the Lord's Supper um, and see that in, the, in this variata. And at that point, they're not really seeing that. And it's not until 1561 they see it. And then it's like, oh, Okay. Yeah. No, we need to be clear and go back to the first one because that is the clearer one. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, and, and Pastor, we are uh, we have about eight minutes left in our time, so I'm going to read the rest of this section, number eighteen, on page eight of the preface to the Book of Concord, and we'll wrap things up. Ver right. uh, number eighteen. Now, some theologians and Luther himself among them when they wrote about the Lord's Supper, were drawn against their will by their adversaries to disputes about the personal union of the two natures of Christ. 
Yet our theologians in the Book of Concord, and by its standard of sound doctrine, testify what is our constant and never-ending opinion, and that of this book, for the Lord's Supper, godly people should be led to no other foundations than the words of the institution and the testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he is both almighty and true, so it is easy for him to do those things that he has both instituted and promised in his word. When this foundation is not attacked by their adversaries, our theologians will not fight back in this kind of argument about other methods of proof. But in true simplicity of faith, they will firmly insist upon Christ's very plain words. That is the safest method, and it is best suited for the instruction of uneducated people. For they do not understand those things that have been discussed with greater exactness. Indeed, it is our assertion that the simple meaning of the words of word of Christ's testament are attacked by the adversaries. The adversaries' attacks are rejected as godless and conflicting with the nature of the true faith. Finally, we say we are contrary to the we say that they are contrary to the Apostles' Creed, especially to the statements about the incarnation of God's Son, His ascension into heaven, and His sitting at the right hand of the Almighty Power and Majesty of God. Hebrews 1, 3. Therefore, their attacks are false, so it must be shown by a true and thorough interpretation of these articles that our opinion differs neither from the Christ from Christ's words nor from these articles. Pastor, with just over five minutes left in our time, this kind of brings us back to kind of summarizing. How do you want to, what do you want to take this? All right. Um, I think there's two key things in this section here. Um, and the first one is somewhat, they get into a little bit of historical, and this is, takes us back actually to the year before the Augsburg Confession of 1529. Um, there was a colloquy meeting between Luther and um, Ulrich Zwingli, the other, another reformer of that day, in Marburg, known as the Marburg Colloquy. And uh, they came to agreement in most things except the Lord's Supper. And there are many from uh, the Reformed camp today who point to that and say, see how mean Luther was, because Luther refused to shake Zwingli's hand at the end because they had a different spirit. But what Luther understood was that it wasn't about the Lord's Supper. It was about the two natures of Christ was where the real problem was. Because Zwingli was saying that Christ cannot be in the sacrament because his body and blood are up in at the right hand of God in heaven and they're up there and so he can't be here. Um, and Luther realized, wait, we're, you're separating the two natures of Christ and saying now his divine nature can be around here, but his human nature is separate and kind of set off on the corner. And uh, that's the problem. And we've always understood going back to the Apostles' Creed, um, the church has always held that no, it is that Christ is fully man, fully God, and you can't separate them. You can't kind of put part of it on the shelf up in heaven, so to speak. Um, it's all everywhere and that. And so that's kind of the, the that secondary question that is laying behind a lot of this is who really is Jesus? Um, is he truly God? Is he truly man? Are those truly united or not? And Luther is saying, yes, they are. Then the other thing that I, I love here that it brings it back to is, is that insistence that, um, and this is uh, uh, the very bottom of that first column on page eight, you know, it says, in true simplicity of faith, they'll firmly insist upon Christ's very plain words. So this is the safest method. You know. And uh, ultimately, you want to say, people say, what is the Lord's Supper? 
know, what do you receive? Christ's body and blood. Um, and I've found it fascinating. I've talked to theologians and scholars of different um, church bodies and traditions. And uh, some will go, so what exactly do you Lutherans understand? And I say, well, we take Jesus' words literally. When he says, take, eat, this is my body. When he says, take, drink, this is my blood. So, okay, that is why he's God. He can do what he wants. And I have yet to have even a scholar argue with me about that. Um, well, now, these are all ones that are conservative hold to, to the um, inerrancy of God's word. But they all like, okay, well, that does make some sense. Um, and uh, our problems always come in when Scripture clearly teaches something. And go, yeah, but you can't really mean that, right, Jesus? <laughs> well, no, he's God. Yeah, he. You know, and you know, John one even points out that nothing was created without Christ. And how was it created? With his word. God's word. God said, and there was of Genesis one. And so, in the same way, when Jesus says, "This is my body." It is. Period. End of story. That's this. That's the, the. I think the simplest, clearest, best way we can understand Scripture. And uh, we always get astray whenever we try to over-explain things and try to get our our poor, feeble human brains around what God is doing. And so, as we as we look at um, everything that revolves around the Augsburg Confession and the controversies that were occurring. Um, it can seem sometimes a little too simplistic, uh, like, okay, is it really that big of a deal? Um, but as you mentioned that this has implications, not only for what do we receive, but what are the benefits of what we receive? And at the same time, who is Jesus? Are there other, other aspects of why this is such an important, like we don't accept this variata because the Lord's supper is that important. Anything else you wanted to highlight that that was at stake? when they made sure that they uh, subscribed to the unaltered? Um, I mean, it, what's, what's at stake? In some ways, a proper understanding even of our very salvation. Um, because if the two natures of Christ are not, if he is not fully God, fully man, all in one, um, then either he was not fully human and died in my place, and in which case I'm bound for hell, or else he's not fully God and his sacrifice was not efficacious for all of us, in which case we're still bound for hell. Um, it, it, it comes down to the very core of our salvation and who he is as true God and true man. And then in the Lord's Supper, it's him bringing those very gifts directly to us. Um, and in both his divinity and his humanity in the sacrament. Um and uh, this is where I take issue with our Calvinist brethren who will say that we'll get the divinity stuff, but not the humanity portion. Um, no, we get the full of Christ. And so this is actually very much so the core of our salvation, um, who Christ is, what he has done for us, and how he then gives it to us. So That's it is, while well, people think I'm splitting hairs, no, this is, this is the core. This is the center of it all. And once again, as we talked about, the Book of Concord is the clear and concise teachings that always point us back to Christ and his salvation. And we want to make sure that we are clear and concise, especially nowadays. Pastor, we have a minute left in our time. How would you want to summarize what we have and encourage our listeners in Christ? Um, well, I guess the, the biggest thing is, is that we have to hold to the clear teachings of Scripture. 
Um, and uh, so I encourage everybody to, to hold to that. And uh, again, the Augsburg Confession, I always encourage a, a study of that after the small catechism as one of the clearest expositions of what does the Bible mean? Um, the problem sometimes with the scripture is, is that say the Lord's Supper is talked about in different places. Um, but what does it mean when you put it all together? Well, that's where the small catechism, the Augsburg Confession, as well as the rest of the Book of Concord helps to explain that clearly. The Reverend Dr. John Helwig, Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Lutheran Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta. Dr. Helwig, thank you for your faithful teaching on Concord Matters. Thank you, Brady. It's been a uh, joy to be here with you. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of the